Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. Sometimes I think our notions of wisdom and greatness are based on very slim evidence. Most people would go along with the idea that both the Buddha and Sophocles were wise, but neither of them seem to have actually written anything. The 13th century Sufi mystic Rumi trends on social media from time to time on the basis of a few fleeting haiku-like observations about love and mortality. And closer to home, what about the 14th century Saint Julian of Norwich, known as the Saint of Contemplation and Cats? Beguilingly, she wrote... All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. It's not much to go on, but it seems in some strange way to exude wisdom. Yes, you may have guessed, wisdom and greatness are our topics this week. In the more granular world of science and applied science, there's much wisdom to be found, of course. Take Benjamin Franklin, for instance. Not so flashy as his fellow founding father, Thomas Jefferson, perhaps, but a great person to have on your team. Mark Skousen sang his praises in the Naked Scientist show, The Life of Benjamin Franklin. Ben Franklin was the first scientific American. He was a great statesman and one of our founding fathers and a very successful printer. But his greatest love was science, and he was very much a practical inventor. He wasn't into high theory and academia and was an inventor of five or six things. I made a list. The Franklin stove, the lightning rod, bifocals, charting of the Gulf Stream, daylight savings and the harmonica. I'd like to welcome my two wise panellists. Their mission? 
to discuss the mysteries of wisdom and greatness. No pressure there, then. They are Dr. Esther Miriam Wagner, Executive Director of the Wolf Institute, and the Reverend Tim Stevens, sometime Bishop of Leicester and non-executive director of the Norfolk and Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust. Tim, Benjamin Franklin seems to typify wisdom. Is it a combination of knowledge, versatility and simply being grounded? Well, I think it probably includes all those things, but as no doubt we'll explore in this conversation, over centuries, wisdom has come to be thought of as including all kinds of qualities. And I think what focuses it for me, and whether I would agree that Benjamin Franklin epitomizes this or not, I'm not sure, it's something to do with a capacity of recognition, wisdom is. The capacity to recognize the consequences of available courses of action would be one way of defining it. It certainly has something to do with knowledge, but it also has something to do with judgment, I think. I think that would be the starting point I'd go from. And we'll come on to explore what that means. But it, it certainly means for me that that wisdom is not the same thing as IQ or intelligence. It may be connected, but it includes a whole lot of other capacities to discern and to judge in ways that involve being able to see beyond oneself, being able to see into a larger context and into the world of others. So discernment, knowledge, judgment. Miriam, I think you've got to be pretty mature, haven't you, to get that right? Well, as Tim said, wisdom comes with the ability to make judgment. And uh, I think the more mature you are and the more experiences you have, the easier it is for you to make judgment on knowledge. I mean, you can have knowledge without wisdom, but you can't have wisdom without knowledge. But in addition, I think need to have life experience and maybe a little bit of suffering. I'm always quite keen to explore the link between suffering and wisdom. I think a lot of people who've had very easy lives very often find it more difficult to acquire wisdom, whereas if you've suffered it's much, much easier to get to the source of wisdom. And I think this is also not just on an individual level, but you have people who have experienced more suffering than others. I think a lot of Jewish wisdom comes from persecution over centuries and millennia. I'm always very, very struck by conversations I have with Russian people. The Russians are people who have also experienced a lot of suffering. I wanted to pick up the point about wisdom and maturity. Certainly no accident that the arrival of the last big molar teeth are called wisdom teeth. They come with age. And I think there is part of the tradition that says that. But Miriam's point was that wisdom can come with suffering and with maturity. Certainly the Greeks had a phrase, pathai mathos, learning through suffering. And of course, that's part of the Christian tradition. Thomas Beecham listening to a young cello player she'll be even greater when she's suffered. There is something about the effect of suffering on broadening and deepening the human character. So we've identified different aspects, if you like, of wisdom, the question of maturity, the question of suffering, the issue of discernment. But you, Miriam, said something quite interesting about IQ and the question of knowledge and, if you like, genius. 
genius is often associated with wisdom. But is genius different from wisdom, Miriam? I don't think that genius is per se connected to wisdom. You need to know things in order to be wise. But sometimes that knowledge can be very minuscule. You can have a kernel of knowledge and come up with a wise phrase. I mean, I'm always astounded by conversations that I remember in the past where sources of wisdom have come from the most unexpected sources. Sometimes you remember a conversation you had with an 18-year-old and they say a really, really wise thing and that stays with you for decades. So I think everyone, even if the IQ is very low, they can still come up with these profound statements of wisdom. I would agree with that. I think it's interesting that last year when I was looking after a theological college, there was a great debate really about whether taking a Cambridge theology degree, which was intellectually taxing, actually correlated with becoming a good priest in the church. And that debate was really about what else do you need above intelligence and intellectual capacity. So I would say IQ is part of it, but it's certainly not the whole of it. And often the deepest wisdom comes from the people who the world regards as of least account and of least intelligence. It certainly has something to do with, I would say, with EQ, with emotional intelligence, I would say is a more significant part of wisdom than IQ. How about considering the wise fool, the Shakespearean character? I've seen them in our classroom, haven't you, Miriam? I think I've definitely seen many wise fools. I think this relates to what I said earlier. I think all of us, even if we're very young, very immature, even if we have very limited knowledge, as long as we have knowledge of one particular kind, I think we are capable of producing great wisdom. And again, I think wisdom has also to do with confidence, confidence in a particular matter. And I think as a fool, perhaps you have it easier to be confident in a particular manner. To be a little bit foolish helps you to produce these great snippets of wisdom. I think the thing about wisdom is that it's never finally closed off. There isn't, as it were, a full stop at the end of wisdom. That Every statement has to be, to some extent, provisional. And I think the fool is the one who asks the question nobody else dare ask sometimes uh, to keep the conversation open or to challenge unexamined assumptions. And that's an absolutely critical function of deepening wisdom and exploring the unexplored features of a conversation or a question. One aspect that's concerned me about wisdom, and we've talked about the positives, if you like, of the benefits of knowledge, of emotional wisdom, of discernment, if you like, in the broader sense. But the term wisdom of the crowd is something, let's unpack some of the difficulties, if you like, is I feel uncomfortable just following the crowd. And so what are the dangers, if you like, of wisdom? I thought about that a bit. I suppose I'm not a behavioral scientist, but some behavioral scientists would say, well, there is an argument for saying that a judgment which takes the average of a very large number of pieces of discernment may turn out to be of more value than an individual judgment. And I suppose that argument is the justification for juries determining guilt or innocence in a courtroom that if you aggregate the opinions of 12 people, you may get a more accurate outcome than simply taking one. But 
of course, we also know that crowds can behave like mobs and become extremely dangerous and abandon judgment. So I'd, I would be very cautious about the wisdom of the crowd if it suggests that the more people involved, the better the judgment will always be. That's a very questionable concept. I think in this connection, perhaps I would raise modesty as an important point. I think for me, wisdom is always connected to modesty. So if you really are a wise person, you will always be a, a modest person. And as soon as knowledge is paired with arrogance, as it often can be in academic circles in particular, I think it's very, very difficult to pair knowledge with arrogance and then have an outcome of wisdom. We're very lucky in Cambridge here that very often we get to sit to these very, very important intellectuals at our dinners in colleges. And I've met a few Nobel Prize winners. And what they all have in common is this great modesty about themselves. They usually talk about their research groups as being the most important producers of the knowledge. They are just the managers. So they will very often not talk about themselves in the process of knowledge production, but of their team. So I think uh, that's something that sort of is very important for me, the connection between wisdom and, and modesty as well. I'm not sure whether wisdom and teamwork is associated in my mind or in the public's mind we often associate wisdom with an individual it's not a team game it's somebody i associated with whether it's benjamin franklin well i mean for me the production of wise statements has also often to do with two interlocutors for example tim stevens who is on this podcast he's one of those people who coaxes out interesting and wise statements i think when i talk to you tim i feel like there is almost someone else talking through me and statements and come out that wouldn't come out in conversation with someone else it is extremely important also to think of sort of wise statements being produced between people some people just have the ability to coax a statement out of you that you didn't know you had in you and when you say it you actually sometimes surprise yourself and it's the interaction with the other person that actually produces the statement that comes from you but it's really a product of that conversation i completely agree with Miriam, that wisdom and arrogance are incompatible, I think. I was thinking of Socrates, who said, I only know that I know nothing. You know, we could spend a happy week discussing what that meant. But it is something about understanding oneself as part of a much, much larger picture and network of understandings and conversations and connections. And arrogance actually impedes that understanding. And can I just add to that, what you just mentioned, this production of knowledge and wisdom that transcends the person who actually gives that statement. We see this in art. We see this in literature. I think very often we're a little bit disappointed when we meet a person who produced a particular piece of literature or art or music because the work itself seems to have so much wisdom and insight and profoundness that it's very, very difficult to then attach it to the creator who often seems not as profound as the work itself. So I think the wise products that are given to us through cultural products are actually often better than the creators themselves and more wise. I think that's fascinating. And of course, we know that novelists often talk about the way that the novel, as it were, has its own dynamic. It doesn't exactly write itself, but it, there seems to be something going on that's bigger than simply the writer. 
And the same with artists who sometimes suddenly find a moment of inspiration to paint and with poets too. As you were speaking, both of you, I was reminded of the story of Elijah in the cave with the storm and the thunder and the lightning. And he heard God through a still quiet voice, the bat coal. There's something about the quietness of wisdom. And part of this podcast is exploring the relationship between wisdom and greatness. So whilst there might be modesty associated with wisdom and humility and almost quiet wisdom, that's not necessarily the case with greatness. What is the relationship between wisdom and greatness? That's a question I've dwelt on a lot. I think greatness probably implies having wisdom, but it must also imply the capacity to apply that wisdom in ways which has significant impact on others, I think, is perhaps the way I would put it. You were making the point about Elijah in the cave. I certainly think that the Dharmic tradition would argue that wisdom and greatness come from silence, from stillness, from a concentration of the mind, and that wisdom is, as it were, a state of being rather than a list of empirical applications. Maybe that's one of the differences between that tradition and the Abrahamic tradition. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. We're discussing wisdom and greatness. And boy, do we need some. My guests are Esther Miriam Wagner and Tim Stevens. Charles Darwin, a colossus of 19th century science, is generally seen as wise rather than brilliant, although that may be a false dichotomy. Here's Alison Pern discussing the great man's working methods in The Naked Scientist show Naked Evolution. Darwin was not a lone genius who suddenly had an epiphany of an idea and and immediately wrote it down. He was somebody who worked away for many years in enormous detail. He talks about amassing great quantities of facts. He did that largely through the medium of correspondence, through letters. Miriam, Darwin talks about communication, communication through letters. And this is something that's always intrigued you, isn't it? The use of correspondence and between groups, between people. Tell us a little bit about that, the wisdom in, if you like, the epistle. I think the communication of wisdom is something that in the olden days was a purely oral form. I mean, the the Bible is firstly uh, communicated orally. The scriptures in most religions are before they're being codified. So I think codification of wisdom into literary forms or into epistles is something that's relatively new. And I think it has been something that has really revolutionized the way that humans live, the way that humans are able to develop their own wisdom and their own intellect. So before we could write things down, when it was just oral communication, it was a very, very privileged position to be able to talk to someone. But being able to codify your thoughts, you were actually able to access the great minds of the time or of previous times. And we are so much better able now to develop ourselves through the writings of others. And I think this is something we take really for granted. We take for granted that we'll have these books and we'll have these letters and we'll we'll get insights into minds. But it's something that hasn't been with humans for a terrible long time. It's a relatively new thing. 
This point that Miriam has raised, if you like, I sense a tension between what one writes and what one hears, uh, what one sees and what one listens to. That's interesting in terms of religion as well, isn't it, Tim? Because there is something about the oral tradition that one hears someone, but yet the Bible is full of words that are connected with sight, revelation, discernment. Maybe that's less so, but what I see. Is there something that you can tease out there? Certainly, there is something in the Bible about the way in which wisdom needs not just to be spoken, but to be embodied. St. John's Gospel, in the beginning, was the word, the logos. That concept really came from Greek philosophy, which was the rationale, the reasoning, the intelligence, the mind behind the whole of the universe. And then in the Christian tradition, that logos, that word, becomes embodied in a human being. And I think that is part of the way we have to understand wisdom, not just in the Christian tradition, that that wise people embody wisdom. They don't just speak it or write it down. You know, it's striking that uh, five or six centuries after Christ, the Emperor Justinian built the great church in Constantinople and called it Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom, Uh, which was the name of a building, as if somehow that building stood for, communicated, embodied, and contained the world's wisdom more than anywhere else. And I think I would say that individuals that I've known who I would regard as as wise, um, it's not just what they've said or written that I hold on to. Somehow it's the personality It's the sense of being alert to the deepest things and the um, most profound truths that they have a way of communicating that's not just verbal. And it's a way of living their lives, isn't it, Tim? Exactly. Can I add something about wisdom and greatness in postmodernity? Because of Of course, this is something that we've seen. We've seen wisdom being deconstructed, although it's less than knowledge or as greatness. Greatness in our time, because we've had this extreme deconstruction of authority, investigation of power dynamics. People find it very, very difficult, I think, to accept greatness. And of course, if you look back at political figures in Britain, Churchill, who was always considered to be one of the greats. You know, nowadays, it's it's very difficult to protect the statues that were erected in his honor. So I think postmodernity has made the acknowledging or judging of greatness much, much harder. Yes, I think Miriam's point about the way the written word has given the world access to wisdom is is important. But of course, by extension, in modernity, there is now so much written, it's overwhelming and it's confusing. And a lot of it is, as it were, relativizing. So that being able to distinguish written wisdom from deception becomes more and more difficult, I think. And also the amount of information in circulation is overwhelming too, so that it often seems as if the people who reach the pinnacle of achievement are the ones who can absorb the most data and handle it most efficiently. 
But I think handling data is a completely different concept from wisdom. I wonder with this question of the growing distrust of authority that we're facing, whether it's due to the abundance of information that's out there or whether it's the postmodern sort of questioning of authority, does that mean that the wise, the great, are a threatened species? I don't think they are a threatened species because you can be a quiet wise person. I think we're possibly seeing less wisdom in the public sphere because it is much, much more difficult to get wise statements through the media. Because wisdom is something that's carried within the individual. So I don't think there's a threat of wisdom going away from the individual. It's maybe just harder for us to get wise statements out into the media landscape. I think that may be the problem. Wise statements are out there. We just don't see them or hear them, Tim. Well, I think Miriam's absolutely right. It's much harder for those who we would have traditionally thought of as wise. How do you express wisdom in a 20-second soundbite on the 10 o'clock news? And does the media really want to trade in wisdom or just in sensation? All of that's true. But I think I would say that in spite of that, and I can't prove this, there's actually a deep longing for wisdom and that people are searching for figures in whom they can trust. And, of course, it's not clear who these figures are, but I, th I think the appetite for wisdom hasn't gone away. I think it's the way it's expressed and the way it's accessed is becoming a great deal more complex with all the technology we now have to find our way through. On that note, Tim, have either of you been touched by the hem of wisdom or greatness? I would say that I have seen and encountered people who have left an imprint on me uh, that is profound. Now, whether I would define it as greatness, I'm not sure, but certainly I have known people who would be astonished to think that I perceived them in that way. But that's part of the reason why I did. People who absolutely displayed the virtues of modesty, of humility, but also, I would say, integrity, thoughtfulness, and people who either through suffering or through life's experiences have meant that they've dealt with their ego needs and replaced them with a radical openness to others that those are the common characteristics of greatness in one or two people who, who I think I've met. I think I'm a victim of postmodernity because thinking back, I don't think I've seen greatness, but I've seen a lot of wise people. I think I've been touched by wisdom in, as I mentioned, these sort of this importance of having a, a conversational partner that brings it out in you. I've been in situations where I've had conversational partners and I think together we manage to produce wisdom in conversation. Funnily enough that lies behind the purpose of the Wolf Institute in terms of understanding yourself in conversation with somebody else and like you Miriam I've always found the benefit of engaging with people as not only the pursuit of knowledge and understanding, but the pursuit of understanding myself. And I can only understand myself in, in that relationship with someone else.
There we must end this dialogue. Thanks to my guests, Esther Miriam Wagner and Tim Stevens. And thanks to you for listening. A word to the wise. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not look at our back catalogue of discussions? It's quite a resource. You may also want to have a listen to other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with more bracing discussion and some new guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.